If you have your uh, copy of God's Word, you can be turning to Matthew 25 this morning. We're going to continue on in Matthew 25. Today we'll be looking at verses uh, 14 through 30, a parable that many of you are familiar with if you have a church background, common, commonly referred to as the parable of the talents. Last week we looked at uh, the readiness of the righteous in the parable of the ten virgins, and I explained that the, the central theme of that parable, not to get too far into the details of it, uh, as we have a tendency to do with parables, but the, the primary thing to pull out of that passage is, the, is readiness, that the righteous are a ready people. They're ready for the return of Christ. This morning, I want us to see something that, that I think... Uh, and God's providence is extremely relevant on, on multiple levels to where we are uh, in the world, uh, to where we are as a nation. And uh, I know for me personally where I'm at in my own life, and I hope that uh, the Holy Spirit will apply this to you also. And the word that I want to use today, last week the word was readiness. The word that I want to use today is risk. The word risk is what we're going to look at this morning. And so if you found your way there in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, if you'll stand with me, uh, we're going to read this passage together. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents uh, gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents." His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents." For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is Recovering the Rule of Risk. Recovering the Rule of Risk. It's the year 2022 today, and we live in what we would call a risk-averse society. 
a risk-averse society. What do I mean by that? I mean that our current social uh, climate is such that we avoid risk at all costs. We don't want to do things where we might lose. We don't want to take a chance on things. We don't want to invest in things where we might not get a return on our investment. One of the things that we have seen particularly in the church over the last couple of years is even within the church, within the worship of the people of God, there is a, uh, an adverse reaction to risk, uh, specifically uh, with the issue of COVID. Now, this is not a political message. If you are regularly attending our church, you know that we don't preach politics from the pulpit. We preach the Bible. However, the Bible does speak into cultural issues. It speaks into things that we deal with every day. I would argue that this passage, and I think you'll see it by the end of our time this morning, is just as relevant today in 2022 as it was when Jesus spoke it to the disciples. Because people don't change, and uh, this passage that we're looking at is inspired by the Holy Spirit who is not bound by time or culture or language or anything else. And so if it was profitable for them, it's profitable for us today. But we have to be honest with ourselves. I have to be honest with myself this morning. We have, have been a fearful people in recent years as a society. Um, even uh, All of us face risk every day. We face all kinds of risks. You, you, you took chances coming here this morning. It's raining. The roads are slick. You took a chance when you decided to come and, and be in worship this morning. Uh, when you go to work. Uh, when you send your kids outside to play. Uh, if you participate in any kind of activities, sports or anything like that. Um, what you do with your money. All of, all of these things are risk. And we've taken such extreme measures in the world uh, to avoid the risk of things, specifically sickness, that some people have been so isolated that the isolation was worse than the sickness, if we're really honest. Some of us, there's some church members here that I haven't seen in a couple of years because of their health. Now, they have real health challenges. This isn't a rebuke to anybody who has to make hard decisions about their health. But obviously we miss those people. Uh, our church has grown so much that many may not realize this. We have grown so much in the last two years that many of you don't even know those people because you've never met them. And they're precious saints. Um, I think in some ways the, the, the fear of our society uh, has robbed us of relationships with each other. There's a term that I want you to think about. I decided not to title, title the message this because I didn't want to be cute. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a term that you might be familiar with, which is risk it for the biscuit. You might have heard the phrase risk it for the biscuit. Now, uh, in researching this, apparently this is a common phrase at the casino. And I know none of us ever go to casinos because we're Baptists. But um, apparently this is a common term in gambling of risk it for the biscuit. So I, so I was thinking to myself, I understand what it means culturally. It means that there's something that you want and you're willing to take a risk to get it. We understand that that's what it means. But where did this phrase even come from? And so I did a little research and I thought it was interesting. So the first time that we know of in history where this phrase, risk it for the biscuit, appears is in an Irish journal in 1966. 
It was a headline of a news article in Ireland. And it was a story about a little boy and his friends who uh, decided that they wanted to uh, rob a cookie truck. That there was a truck with cookies. If you're familiar in the UK, the word uh, that they use for cookie is biscuit. And so these boys decided that they wanted to sneak into the cookie truck and get some cookies. And so this boy got into the cookie truck and started eating the cookies. And the cookie driver realized that there was somebody in the back of the truck. So he started the truck up and drove the truck to the police station so that whenever that person got out, the police would be uh, ready to apprehend this criminal. They ended up finding out that it was this little boy and that the little boy had never been in trouble before and was generally a well-behaved young man and came from a good family, and so they decided to let him go. And the headline said, Boy, Risk It for the Biscuit. And that's where the term comes from. Now, uh, I'm not willing to go to jail over a cookie personally, but there should be some things that we should be willing to go to jail for. Uh, Some of our brothers and sisters are willing to die for some things. This is uh, very applicable. Uh, Even today, they are risking it for something much more uh, than a cookie. So with that in mind, in our risk-averse society, I think Jesus teaches us something here in the parable of the talents that may help us uh, recover the rule of risk. We need to have a biblical understanding of risk. The Bible teaches it. Here, Jesus teaches it. And uh, we need to apply it uh, correctly. So the first thing I want you to see in our text this morning is the sowing of the servants. Look at verses 14 through 18 again. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So this is the sowing of the servants. The first thing uh, about this that I want you to see is is these talents, the talents distributed. So these talents are being distributed from the master to the slaves. So a couple things just so you understand the context. Uh, The word talent here is not talking about uh, your personal skills. So some some people have heard that preached. You know, talent is like the people that sing on TV. That's not what this is talking about. Now, there there is some application there, and we'll see that as we go through. But specifically, the word that's being used here for a talent is actually a a measurement of weight. It's also not a coin. You may have heard maybe this is some money. It's actually a weight that was assigned. So it it could be money. It could be something like grain. It could be something like gold. But uh, regardless of what it was, it was a specific amount of weight of something valuable that the master was giving his slaves here. And so uh, we want to understand in the context of what is it that he's talking about. He's giving them a weight. And most scholars cannot say specifically what like a modern equivalent would be of this value. But we're talking about something in, in the several thousands plus dollars in our modern day equivalent. So we're not talking about he's giving them a 20 and say do the best you can. This is a substantial uh, sum of money. This master was very wealthy and the talents or the measurement that he was giving to his people, uh, to his slaves here, uh, was a valuable amount of money. It was significant. And then we want to understand, uh, just real quickly, I do want to explain the context of, of masters and slaves here, because uh, you may have a different translation that uses the word servants. Um, in the original language, it's doulos, which is a, a bond servant or a slave. And we've talked about this in other passages, but I just want to remind you 
that this, the slavery in the first century Roman Empire that you see here is different from the way that it worked here in the, in the United States. So some people that don't know the Bible very well would look at this and say, well, see, the Bible's condoning slavery and treating people as though they aren't persons, and that's why the Bible's evil. Uh, some people make that argument. Those people are ignorant and don't understand uh, the way that this system worked. The slavery system in, in the Roman Empire was essentially uh, like a welfare system and actually protected people from poverty. And so if you look at the history of it, most of these slaves were usually very skilled artisans or business people. So these were not uneducated or unskilled people. They were usually very good at a particular trade or something that they did. But they got into a situation where they couldn't afford to live or maybe uh, someone in the, in the family uh, wasn't able to work and provide. Some kind of financial hardship came upon them. And so what they would do is they would go to a business owner or a wealthy person and they would make a contract with them. And they would say, I'm able to provide this skill. Let's say they're a blacksmith. I'm a blacksmith. I'm able to uh, manufacture weapons, armor, things like that for you. And so I'm going to go and do my blacksmith business. And in some cases, they might have been homeless. And the owner says, you can actually live on my property. You can open up your shop here and sell your stuff. But every year, you've got to make me a payment of whatever you make until you've paid off the debt for the money that I'm loaning you. To understand it in our modern context, uh, the, the largest purchase that many of us will make in our lifetime, um, unless you have like a master's degree, is a, a mortgage. <laughs> Um, it, it, you go to the bank because you don't have the cash to pay for your house outright. So you make a contractual agreement with the bank to say, I will pay you this amount a month in, in exchange for you purchasing this home for me. And then once I have paid off my debt to you, then I'm free and the home belongs to me. This often happened with the slaves. They would work for a certain amount of years to pay off a certain amount of debt. And then they were free to go. And in society, many of them actually didn't leave. They just continued on with their business and continued using the space and everything else of the master there. And so the master continued to receive passive income from these people that he had helped. And in exchange, they had established their business over however many years and were making a good living. And so this isn't an oppressive, abusive system in most cases as we would think of in our American context. So what he's saying here is it's like... Uh, if you went to the bank to get a mortgage and the bank said, uh, yes, we will provide this house for you, but you have to work as a bank teller in our bank. And every week when you get paid, you're allowed to keep some of the money for your food and your expenses. But then we're going to take the rest of your money until you've paid your house off. And then you don't have to work for us anymore. That would be a, a modern understanding of, of how that system would, would, would work um, in, in the sense of uh, owing debt. So these would have been three servants who owed the master some kind of debt, were providing some kind of skill or service. And as we see here, they were very skilled at, at what they did uh, in order to pay this uh, master back uh, the debt that they owed him. So the talents are distributed here. I want to make a point uh, very quickly to our modern context. As I said, the Bible does teach principles that apply. So one of the issues that I do want to address with this text, because I think it's appropriate to uh, address, is the idea of uh, critical theory, intersectionality, these kind of words. Now, some of you may not be familiar with this. Some of you may be following this. It's become more popular in the news and these kind of things. Long story short, this is a derivative of uh, Marxism that's in our society, which promotes what's called equality of outcome. So everybody should end up the same, whether that's through their education, whether that's through their finances, whether that's through 
their housing, that in the end, everybody should have the exact same standing, the exact same stuff. Now, that sounds like a great idea. Uh, I, I'm sure we could all agree today we don't want poverty to, to exist. We don't want people to be without homes or uh, without access to education or without uh, proper food. Uh, as believers, in fact, we're commanded to help people with those things, so certainly we, we don't want those problems to exist. But the problem is, and I think it's illustrated here just as a biblical principle, is that the Bible teaches that people need to have equal opportunity and not necessarily equal outcomes. In other words, it says that it was the assessment of the master of what he wanted to give to them and that they each had an equal opportunity to invest uh, what they were given and receive a profit from it. But they didn't all necessarily receive the same amounts. And in society, it's the same way with us. Uh, we all work different careers in here. We have different incomes. I'm sure all of our bank accounts look very different. Um, but we want to live in a country, and sometimes this works and sometimes it doesn't because we don't live in a perfect system, where everyone has an equal opportunity, where if they're willing to work or willing to learn or willing to do these things, that we want to encourage everybody to have great opportunities in our country, in our society, and that we don't want them to be limited unfairly because of uh, some kind of obstacle to them. And so the problem with critical theory that I want to point out is that it presupposes that all human beings properly resourced will act in the best interest of themselves and others. If, if you want a person to not be homeless, give them a house, and then they won't be homeless anymore. If you want a person to get off of drugs, provide them rehab, and then they won't be on drugs anymore. If you want a person to get better employment, provide them with a free education, and they will be able uh, to get the kind of employment that they want to have. This is the, the methodology that our society is practicing right now. And if you look around in our society, it's not working. And the reason why it's not working is because it, it's based on a presupposition that if you give people what they need, they will make the right choices. As Christians, we understand that that's not true. It's not been true from the beginning. Adam had everything. He had everything except deity. And, and that wasn't enough for him. And so because he made a choice in his own self-interest at the expense of not only his wife, but the entire rest of humanity, we are all suffering because of his decision. Which is the reason why throwing money at social problems doesn't fix social problems. Now, as Christians, again, we are not against helping people. But in order for a person to stop sinning, you don't need to give them resources. They have to be born again. This is what we teach in Christianity. So I just want to point that out, that biblical anthropology, a biblical doctrine of man, presupposes that human beings will act sinfully to themselves and others. And so when we're helping people, we have to recognize that we're helping sinners and that sinners are going to sin, and that uh, giving them everything that they, that they want or that they need is not going to make them not sin, because they're going to continue to do that. And so we offer both. You need to be born again so that you don't sin against yourself and other people. That's that that's the ground level. Now, how can we help you? Now, now that you're fighting sin, now that you have the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, how can we help you? So what we see here is not equal distribution of wealth here, but equal distribution of opportunity. And I would just point out that I think that that's a biblical principle that we need to be mindful of in our current society. So we see the talents distributed here in the sowing of the servants. The next thing I want you to see is the talents deposited. So the, la the last part of that passage that we looked at there, well, what do they do? So they each received their talents. One received five, one received two, one received one. Uh, what did they go and do with that? Well, the first two, it says they didn't delay their trading. 
So one of the things they didn't do is, is they didn't wait. They already knew of an opportunity. Here's a, a business I can invest in, or here's a skill that I have. I can use this to start up a business and make money. Here's a, a bank that I can put this in. They obviously had something in mind that they saw as being a good investment, and it says they immediately went and took that money and invested it. And why do you do that? If you have investments, you understand that uh, the earlier that you get in on an investment, the more time you have to reap rewards on your investment. And so uh, this is the reason why people buy insurance policies or stocks or things like that now, especially when you're younger, because the earlier that you uh, get that life insurance policy, the cheaper it is. You try to get a life insurance policy when you're in your 60s or 70s, it's going to be really hard for you to find one that, that's willing uh, to pay out. That's the way that the system works. And these were obviously shrewd servants that understood, okay, if I want to maximize what I'm going to get out of this, I've got to invest it now. I can't wait. I've got to do it right away. So Jesus points out that that's how they deposited it. Um, so they found a good opportunity and they took the risk. An investment is a risk. Uh, sometimes you win, sometimes you don't win. Um, a big difference in society between the wealthy and the middle class is the willingness to fail. A lot of people don't realize this. Uh, I've, I've met people, uh, I know people personally who are millionaires. Um, those people uh, are believers, and they're actually incredibly uh, generous people. You would think that they wouldn't be. But one of the common mindsets that you see, and if you look at these leadership guys out there and these wealth experts and all this kind of stuff, one of the things that you'll see that they'll say is the difference between the mindset of a wealthy person and a middle class person is risk. Uh, wealthy people understand, uh, in order for me to acquire more, I have to risk more. And sometimes it's going to pay off and I'm actually go going to be in a really good position financially. And sometimes it's not going to pay off and I'm actually going to lose. In fact, uh, when you look at entrepreneurs at the statistics, most successful business owners and CEOs have failed multiple companies before they get to the position that they're in. Many of them start companies that just never make it. In fact, a lot of these organizations that help uh, fund these companies that start, they fully expect for a large percentage of the businesses to, to not work. Uh, they, just, they just fold, and then that person learns, that, and then they make another investment, and eventually they make one that is the right investment, and it pays off, and they're able to have a successful uh, business. This is something that happens. Uh, in fact, uh, we even see the same statistics in church planning. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of church plants, new churches that start, a lot of them fail within the first five years uh, financially to where they can't, they can't exist anymore. Um, I had a friend, he tried to plant a church for seven years, and they finally had to just close the doors because they just couldn't keep it going. They were, they were reaching people that didn't have any money, and it just took money to have the church. And so his church was former drug addicts and prostitutes and people from the homeless shelter and people that were uh, on food stamps, and, and they were willing to serve, and they loved the Lord, but, but they just didn't have what it takes to have a building and have lights and, and uh, those kind of things. And eventually they just had to shut it down. And, the, and in his case, they were in an area where they couldn't even find a healthy church to partner with them because they didn't want to be with those kind of people. And so that, that's a, a whole other issue. But the difference uh, between acquiring uh, uh, wealth and squandering wealth, a lot of it is related to risk, wise risk. Now, I'm not advocating that you go out this afternoon and buy a lottery ticket because wealthy people also understand that that is not a good investment for you to make. Um, we're talking about investing things uh, that are wise investments that produce returns. 
But anybody that's in business knows that rewards always come with risk. You don't, you, nobody's just going to give you free money. Nobody's just going to uh, pay off your debt for you or do this kind of, we see that on TV and we always think, well, maybe that'll happen to us. Somebody will show up at our door with the big check. Like when I was a kid, you know, they had the clearinghouse people that show up with the big, one day, one of these days, I'm just going to pray for it and the Lord's just going to show up with a big check and pay off all of my debt. It's probably not going to happen for most people. That's not how it works. What's going to happen is, is you're going to have to take a risk like uh, I'm going to sacrifice this in my budget to pay extra on that debt to pay that debt off faster and then I actually save the money in interest on something like my mortgage. You have to make decisions like that. So these slaves took the same risk on their investment that the master did on them. So think about it. The master is taking a risk on these slaves. In fact, uh, he, he, only gets, uh, he only gets a two-third return on his investment in this story. He gets nothing out of the third guy. Um, like you said, if that third guy would have even put it in the bank, he, he would have gotten something on his investment, but he actually uh, got nothing on his investment from the third guy. So even in this story, uh, the master is taking a risk on his slaves. He's saying, I think according to your ability that you're able to do this, uh, but you may strike out. But he, but he was willing to take the risk on those slaves in order to get the return that he got. So the slaves, all they're doing is passing that risk down. They're saying, he took a risk on me. I'm going to take a risk on this business or this investment or this banking thing or uh, this product or whatever it is that I'm going to use to earn money back. I might fail and the master might fail, but the master knew that he might fail when he invested in me and I need to know that I might fail when I invest in this. So I try to make the wisest decision that I can, but in the end it may work or it may not work. It's a risk that they're taking. What about you? What, what is your opportunity for investment in the kingdom of God this morning? We all have... Uh, investments that we can make. And I'm not just talking about uh, money, by the way. We understand uh, everything that we have comes from the Lord. Um, how, how can you use your house for the kingdom of God? How can you use your car for the kingdom of God? Your job, uh, the influence that you have, the connections that you have with people. Uh, maybe it is your financial situation. Maybe it is your education. Maybe it is the things. Think about the things that you have. Nothing that you have is accidental. Nothing that you have is coincidental. And uh, Jesus is teaching us here that he wants us to use the material things that we have to produce spiritual good. Because in the end, if all we do is invest in earthly things, if you, if you invest your money wisely and in the end of your life, you're this multimillionaire or whatever, that's why I had Wesley read the Ecclesiastes passage. What happens when you die? You don't take any of it with you. It, it basically did no good just sitting in a bank and, and not doing anything for your whole lifetime. And of course, as we've seen with the Ten Virgins, if the Lord returns then it's really not doing any good. There's a lot of churches uh, in, this, in this region that are sitting on millions of dollars in savings accounts while people are dying and going to hell. And I don't want to be one of those ones that when Jesus comes back, he's like, what did, what did you do with, I gave, with what I gave you? Did you do anything with it? Is there any spiritual good that has come out of what you've done, out of what I've provided for you, um, for me personally and, and for our church? So, one of the things that we see with, with them deposit is the longer you wait, the more that you lose on your investment. They went and they did it immediately because they realized as soon as, as, soon as the master gave it to them, I got to put it to work. I, I, I need that to be doing something good for the master as soon as I get it. Um, this is one of the reasons why in giving, a lot of times you hear the principle is you give right away. You get paid, you take that money right away. Why? One, if we're really honest, a, a lot of us, myself included, are probably not self-controlled enough to be like, I'm just going to leave that in the bank and it'll be fine until I get there. Sometimes it's like, no, I need to take that out so it doesn't magically disappear at Chick-fil-A or something like that. 
um, we, we all have to take different measures uh, according to our level of self-control. But the longer that we wait to do those kind of things, the more that we're losing uh, the investments that, that we make. We want to use the things that God gives us right away because the time is short. So we see the sowing of the, ser- of the uh, servants here. The second thing I want you to notice in our text is the reaping of the ruler. So let's look at verses 19 through 23 again. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you have entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So in the reaping of the ruler here, we see the talents delivered. They're being delivered. He's calling them. He's settling accounts now. Notice it says that they were given a long time to invest. It says, after a long time, the master came. Now, we understand in the the greater context of this passage, Jesus is talking to the disciples here, and he's talking about the return of Christ. He's saying when Jesus returns, that all the believers are going to settle accounts. He's going to call in those those who are called by his name, his servants, and he's going to say, here are, here are the things that I gave you, right? And, not, and, and again, we have a tendency to over-spiritualize this and say, well, he's just talking about the gospel and sharing the gospel. Well, sure, that's something huge that he's given us. But as Americans, we like to kind of separate the spiritual from the material and say, well, he's just talking about spiritual things. He's not talking about like my house or my car or my job or my marriage or my kids. He's not talking about that. He's talking about both. He's talking about all of it. And he's saying, we are going to have to give an account. What did you do with what I gave you? And it says, after a long time. So hopefully, for all of us here in this room, we still have a long time, according to Jesus, to do something with what he's given us. And hopefully, we all have a long time. But notice here in the language that the two slaves, these two slaves that had had reward, they were excited. Uh, You might not necessarily see an exclamation point in the text there, but the language indicates that they were excited because they come up to him and they say, you gave me five talents. See, I have gained five more talents. It's like, uh, it's like when you give your kid a dollar and they want to go start a lemonade stand and they make $2 and they come back and look, you know, they're, they're shaking it. Look what I did. I went out and I made money. I made this thing and somebody bought my lemonade and, and now, uh, now I have $2 instead of $1. They're investing in, it, in something. They're excited about it. And these servants were the same way. And, and uh, what, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be exciting to have something to show Jesus? Wouldn't it be great? Uh, I, I, got to, I got to talk with two people about the gospel this week for several hours. And it was so exciting because I thought, I told, I told Rebecca when I came home, I was like, how amazing would that be if this guy that I talked to and his family and his friends and all of them were in this church five years from now, if they all came to Christ? How excited would that be to say, okay, Jesus, you saved me, but, but, but look, look what I've done. Look at these other souls. Look at these other people who have believed because of the work that you did in me. Like, I did something for you. Um, we should have that excitement like a little child that wants, that wants to show their parents, aren't you proud of me? Uh, aren't, you proud, aren't, aren't you proud that you made a good decision when you invested in me? We should be excited about that. And so these two slaves were excited to show him Yes, you gave me this, and look what I've been able to do with it. They had something to show uh, for what they were given. 
And then the talents dignified. There's dignity added to these talents. Why? Because the master is pleased with what he sees. Notice he says to both of them, uh, enter into the joy of your master. Now that word joy uh, can also reference something like a festive dinner or experience. Does that sound familiar? We hear about the marriage supper of the Lamb in the parable of the ten virgins. They are able to go into the wedding feast. This is the same kind of language that Jesus is using here. Is hey, for those who have done something with what they've been given, uh, there is a reward for them in the end. And they in, get to enter the joy. They get to be a part of the master's joy, this experience with him. Enter into the joy of your master. That is the best thing that you will ever be able to hear in this life or the next. There's nothing else that, that you could do in this life with, with uh, money or time or people. There's nothing else that you could do that will compare on that day to enter in the joy of your master. Paul says uh, that I, we should not consider these things in light of, of glory, that with the glory that's set before us, the, the cares of this world, the, the concerns of this world are, are nothing. Um, that it was the joy set before Christ that he endured the cross. How was he able to endure the cross? Because of the joy that was set before him. How are our brothers and sisters in Ukraine able uh, to, to endure the difficulty that they're going to have? Which, by the way, if they do come under a communist re regime, they will also come under persecution in that way as well. Uh, how are they able to endure that? Because of the joy set before them. The same, the same thing that, that Christ saw. So how are we able... To, to make that investment with what God gives us because of the joy set before him. The only reason that anybody takes a risk is because they're looking at the reward. They're saying, it's, if this pays off, it's going to be worth it. If it actually pays off, it's going to be worth whatever the risk is. Notice here, again, there's a, there's a principle here that the master was more interested in a return on investment than he was on numerical values. So notice the one with five added five. The one with two added two. There's no conversation here from the master of, well, I gave you two, but why didn't you get five like the other guy? Or the one with five. Yeah, that's really good that you did five, but six would have been better. That's how our bosses think a lot of times, right? I don't know if you've ever worked for somebody like that, but, but I have. Um, my, my boss now isn't that way. He's more like this guy. But... Um, He's interested in a return on his investment instead of a numerical value. So he's not saying, here's the standard that I expect you to meet. If you don't meet this standard, you're not acceptable to me. He's saying, you did something. You took what you had and you did something. And I'm happy that you did something. That was what his satisfaction was. So having a risk and reward approach to your spiritual life guards against legalism. It helps protect you from legalism. Why? Legalism is looking for a specific number, and investment is looking for a return. Legalism is, I've got to go to church this many times, or I've got to put this much money in, or I've got to do these kind of things, or check these boxes, or whatever, and then God will be happy with me. God, if, I, if I just go through the right hoops, if I, if I jump through the right hoops, God will accept me. That's legalism. What God wants is a return on an investment. He's more concerned about you coming to him excited about what you were able to do than what the thing is itself. He doesn't need your money. He, does, he doesn't need your job. He doesn't need your house or your car or your education. Or, he doesn't need any of that stuff. He doesn't need us at all. He was perfectly content before he made the world in any humans. He didn't make us because he was lonely. Uh, he doesn't need us. And so why has he done all this? For his glory. 
We, and it's interesting that the word glory is this idea of weight, which is also what the idea of a talent is. So in his, essentially, he's not concerned about how much you're adding to his glory as much as he is, are you adding to his glory? Are you doing something? Is he more glorious because of your life? Uh, are, are you attributing wor worth to him that he is worthy of? And so we don't want to be legalistic, but think about this. God purchased you at the expense of his own son, and then he placed the deposit of the Holy Spirit in you until the judgment. So nothing you have is by accident. God has made an investment in you, believer. He has purchased you with his son, which is a tremendous cost. It, it cost him a lot uh, in order for him to purchase his people. And he puts the guarantee, uh, the word that Paul uses there is a word for a down payment, in you. Uh, so that that good work that he begins in you, he will complete until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, it will be fully satisfied what he has promised us in, in the Holy Spirit in the end. He's made that investment in you. He's taken a risk on you, so to speak. Now, of course, we know he knows the future and he controls the outcome, so he has an advantage. But in this parable, this is part of the point that Jesus is making. Remember, he's talking to his disciples. Hey, disciples. Remember when you were nobodies? Remember when you were fishermen and you weren't doing anything for God? Uh, you weren't advancing the kingdom? Remember when I called you and you followed me? And remember when I told you about how God's going to send you the Holy Spirit and that he's going to give you power uh, to preach my gospel? Uh, don't, don't forget this, because remember, this is, the, this is the last day before he gets arrested. This is the end of his preaching ministry. This is one of the last things he's going to say to his disciples is, I'm not dying for you for nothing. I expect to get something out of it. I expect a reward for my suffering. Uh, he deserves that. And so God's expectation of you is performance, not perfection. Now, I know immediately you might hear that in Bristol and say, we're not saved by works. That's true. We know that, that we're not saved by works. We know that. But at the same time, you can't separate what you believe from what you do. You can't do it. If you want to know what somebody really believes, watch what they do. Uh, even with their words, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you can come to church and you can say all the right stuff and then you can say some other stuff when you're not in church. And the question is, what does it reveal about that person's heart? The same thing with your actions. Uh, we, can all, we can all show up here and, and try really hard for an hour, right, to be spiritual. But like our coworkers and our family members, I mean, they know how we really are uh, during the week and the, and the Lord knows that. And so uh, I, I can't see anybody's heart. You guys can't see my heart. You don't know what, what I'm uh, like at home unless you're spending time uh, with my family at home, but God's uh, ex expectation of us is not perfection. He knows that you're not perfect. He knows that you aren't. That's the whole reason why he sent Jesus to begin with, is because you aren't. But he does expect performance. He doesn't expect his investment to return void. He wants something from us. And so, nothing that you have is by accident. So the question is, when you look at your life right now, look at the decisions that you're making, even just look over the past week, with how you spent your time, how you spent your resources, how you used the material things that God gave you, how you used the influence, maybe people that you're able to talk to that other people aren't able to talk to, ask yourself, will you be excited to show him what you've been working on when he comes again? You might not say, uh, there's a lot of missionaries that are in glory right now that had zero souls for their ministry. 
they're going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to, and if he asks them the question, how many people came into my kingdom because of your ministry? The answer might be zero. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Why is he going to say that? Because he's not asking for the result. He's asking for the performance. He's saying, try, do something. That's his expectation. Uh, do something. Even if you fail, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't need the result. He's glorious whether we give him glory or not. He does, you're not going to do something to him by doing something right or wrong. But if you don't do anything, this is the only way that you lose in this story is if you don't do anything. Which brings us to the, the third and final observation here, the complaining of the coward. The complaining of the coward, verses 24 through 30. And the one who also had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put the money in, in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does not have shall be taken away or even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see that the talents are despised here by this third slave. He's different from the other two. Notice that he has a personal relationship with the master. You notice that in the text? The other two have a business relationship. You gave me a job to do. I went and did my job. Didn't I do great? This last one, he's saying that he knows something about the master as a person. Well, I, I know you. I know that you're a hard man. The, the word in the Greek there is austeros, where we get the word austere from. You're, you're, you're a hard man. You're hard to please. That's the kind of person that you are. And so I was afraid because if I invested it and I lost your money, then you would be angry with me and punish me for losing your money. But if I invested it and earned the money, you would take it all away and I wouldn't get anything out of it. So how is it good for me? What do I get out of this deal? This is what he's saying to the master here. He's accusing, he's assaulting the master's character. He's saying, you're not really good. You're not good for me. You're not good for anybody else. You're only about yourself. You ever heard anybody complain about God being that way? Well, what do you mean? Like, it's so selfish for God to say that everything's about him and he owns everything. And he's glorious. That's really selfish for him to say. Yeah, it is. And why is it wrong for God to be selfish? Uh, it's wrong for us to be selfish because we don't actually own everything, and it's really not all about us. It's not wrong for God to be selfish because it really is all about him, and it's all for him. It, like when he says that he's a jealous God, uh, well, is it right for God to be jealous? Well, yeah, it is when you're the only one. You don't really want any competition if, if you know that you're the only one. So... This, this life's opinion of the master is incorrect and unfair, though. Notice he's accusing his character, but that's not who the master really was. He's saying, oh, you're a hard man, and you don't want to bless people, and you just, you're just trying to make money, and you're just trying to get something out of this. Remember the other two slaves? He wasn't that way with them at all. He was kind to them. He blessed them. He's come and enter into this joy. Yeah, I'm, prou I'm proud of you. You've done a great job. That doesn't sound like a hard man to me. It sounds like he was, he was welcoming them. He was, he was happy about the work that they had done. And yet this other slave says, I, I hid from you and I hid your money because I was afraid because you're a hard man. 
Uh, it's interesting, uh, one commentator said, the foolish virgins in the previous passage failed because they thought that their part was too easy. And the wicked servant fails because he thought his part was too hard. So, so they, both, they both failed. So no risk, no reward. That's the way, that's the way that, it, that it works in this passage. That's the way that it works in real, real life. If you're wanting to get that promotion at work or you're wanting to get the, the bigger house or the nicer car or whatever it is that you want, you won't get any of those things without taking a risk. Again, those things don't just come to you in life. You don't just sit around and those things come. You have to work for those things. You have to take a risk. You have to do those things. You realize with your job, we forget this, you're taking a risk every week when you work for your employer until you get paid because you assume that the payday is coming. I've actually worked jobs before where the payday didn't come, and the announcement was, by the way, uh, you just worked the last two weeks for free because we're bankrupt and we're like closing today. That happened to me one time. So we, we presume upon that. But you're taking a risk. When you go out and you do that work and you're not getting money in your hand at the end of that shift, you're taking, you're taking a risk because it may or may not be there. So we do that all the time. Uh, the only thing worse for an investor than losing his money is having it sit with no possibility of reward. That's worse. If you, if you ask an investor, hey, uh, it's better for you to put money in a bad market when things are low so that when the market goes up, you make money. It's better to put it in a bad market than to not put it anywhere. You think about... Again, this is kind of a lesson in, in economics with inflation. Your dollar isn't worth as much now as it was a year ago or two years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago. So how do you keep up with inflation? Well, for some people, they take a risk and they invest it in something that's going to beat inflation so that when they get older in their retirement account, that money is still worth something uh, or it's even worth the equivalent with interest of what a dollar is now in 50 years when a dollar isn't worth what a dollar is worth. But that's the reason why some people uh, invest. So for an investor to say, I'm just going to take this cash money, like think about it practically. According to statistics, your dollar, if you pull out a dollar bill right now, is worth 7% less right now than it was last year. Which means if you buried that dollar in the ground last year, you lost money on that dollar. If you would have taken that dollar and put it into some kind of investment, there's a chance that it, was, it would still be worth what it was a year ago or possibly even more, but you have to risk putting it into something where you might lose. But guess what? The only way you're sure to lose is by not doing anything. Then you're definitely going to lose. That's the point that Jesus is making here. The church that is closed today because it wasn't open last year is no loss to God. Think about that. The church that was closed for two years, sorry, we're not doing anything. And then today, it's gone. Uh, if you were to go there today, the building's locked, the lights are turned off, there's nobody there. Um, how has God lost anything from a church that hasn't done anything? And so we, we see that. We see churches closing down even in our own county, and we think, this is so horrible. But the reality is, is God hasn't lost anything because they might have not been doing anything anyways. And the reality is, is just because we're here and the lights are on this morning doesn't mean that we are doing something if we're not actually taking risk and, and investing in the kingdom of God. And so you don't compare yourself with other people, and we can't compare our church with other churches. We can't look at the church that's bigger and has the nicer building and the money and the, whatever it is that people think that they want in church. We, we're not called to compare ourselves to that. You're not called to look at that really talented person and say, well, if I was like that person, then I could make an investment. God didn't call you to be that person. He didn't give you those gifts. Smaller churches facing bigger risk earn greater rewards. Think about that. 
When you think about things that need to be done in Haywood County, if we want to see Waynesville come to Christ, if we want to see this city come to Christ, if it could be done with money, there's churches that can do it with money. There are churches in this county that have enough money to make that happen, but they can't make that happen because it's spiritual work. It's just, it, people have to be converted. They, ha- they have to be born again in order for that to happen. Well, guess what? This church can do that just as good as a church with a million dollars in the bank. There's nothing stopping us from doing that. Smaller churches facing bigger risk earn greater rewards. And then the, uh, lastly, the, the talents displaced here. Uh, notice that when he says wicked and lazy with the servant, he's contrasting that with good and faithful. Uh, one commentator pointed that out. This, what's the aspects? Are you a good and faithful servant or are you a wicked and lazy servant, as Jesus puts it here? And whatever the righteous reap, God reaps. So the good fruit in your life, the people that you're discipling, the people that you're having in your home or, or people that you're talking to that you're praying with, when you see good fruit in their life, that's God's fruit too. So you get to enjoy it, but then he also gets to enjoy it as well. We want, to, we want to provide that to him. We can't separate what we believe from what we do. MacArthur said it well this way. He said, saving faith is serving faith. That's what he said. So, in conclusion this morning, are you willing to risk all of your possessions, your skills, your influence, even your own life, for a reward that cannot be taken away? William Barclay said that men are not equal in talent, but men can be equal in effort. In this parable, Jesus tells us that there can be no religion without adventure. Father, we thank you for uh, this text this morning. Lord, what what a challenging text. That Lord, even as you were preaching this for the first time, as Jesus preached this to his disciples, there was one among them that was the wicked servant that actually despised the master, that actually sold out the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. And we know that Jesus knew that when he preached this and that this was a warning to them, Lord. And let it be a warning to us today that, Lord, what you offer us, forgiveness of sins, adoption into your family as sons and daughters, eternal life, being joint heirs with Christ who has all the riches of glory at his disposal, Lord, uh, these things can't compare with anything that we could earn or gain in this life. And so, Lord, help us to not cling to the things of this world and forget that you have much better things laid up for us ahead. Help us to be a church, Lord, that takes risk for you so that when you come, we don't just have what you've given us, but we've done something that matters for you. Show us what that is in our own lives. Show us what it is as a church, Lord, and give us the power through your Holy Spirit to obey you so that we can be like those good servants, Lord, that want to come to you excited to show you what Barberville Baptist Church has done for your name in this city, that you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.